Welcome to the Talks on Law California MCLE podcast, interviews with leading attorneys, professors, and judges on important and thought-provoking legal topics. And now for the interview. The latest science shows that our thoughts are inextricably linked with the physical structure of the brain. And when that structure is damaged, the effects on our behavior can be radical. So to what extent should the law assess neuroscience in determining the culpability of individuals and the likelihood that they may commit crime in the future? Hello and welcome to Talks on Law. I'm your host, Joel Cohen. Our guest today is a top thinker in the field and a professor at Fordham Law School. Deborah Denna, welcome to Talks on Law. Thank you. Maybe you can share with us a case where the determination of the court was radically impacted by the neuroscience involved. Uh, there was a case in 2010 of John McCleskey, who had engaged in a pretty horrible crime of killing a couple in their, uh, to steal their camping vehicle. An elderly uh, couple. An elderly couple, that's right. They were a retired couple. It's a really tragic case. Of course, all these cases are tragic. But uh, a neuroscientist had introduced into court evidence that McCluskey had uh, frontal lobe damage. That is damage to the brain that, uh, that examines whether somebody can plan or intend to commit a crime. And the jury seemed to be quite influenced by that testimony that he had brain damage, in which case he simply wasn't given the death penalty. He's going to be locked up for the rest of his life, but he's not going to be executed. So the judge took it into consideration, or the jury here took it into consideration? Well, the judge allowed that evidence to be uh, allowed into court. Indeed, most judges allow this evidence to be let into court. It's considered to be perfectly acceptable. And the jury, at least in jury interviews, seemed to take that evidence very seriously. My question is, is this indicating a lesser degree of culpability, or is it simply to allow the jury to feel a little bit of compassion for the individual? Well, really both things. I mean, every trial has a guilt phase and then a penalty phase. A guilt phase is determining whether the defendant is guilty or innocent. A penalty phase in a death penalty case is determining, are we going to execute that person? And in making that kind of decision, courts have widely held that jurors can consider all types of evidence that would uh, that would help them in their decision. And that evidence can, like, like the fact that their children love them or the fact that they were a good employee. Absolutely. In fact, whether they're religious, etc., or whether literally their mother loves them. So evidence that, that that defendant has brain damage or that they're mentally ill or that they were injured as a child, uh, etc., and that had behavioral changes, that they were emotionally abused, all these factors can come in uh, for, for uh, a jury to make their decision, including this kind of evidence. And indeed, the United States Supreme Court has held that, that attorneys are supposed to investigate this evidence and introduce it into court. So not only can they, but they actually are under an obligation to look into it. Absolutely. They can be rendered ineffective if they don't investigate this evidence. So the McCleskey case was an example where neuroscience was used in the punishment phase. Can you give an example that we could go through and discuss where it was used in determining guilt itself? 
Fewer number of cases it's been used in determining guilt. I do have a number of cases where uh, evidence of mental illness or brain damage is introduced by the court to determine that the uh, that the defendant wasn't engaged in a first-degree murder. Uh, first-degree murder means that they had premeditation of some sort and deliberation, but rather that they were acting impulsively, in which case they would be charged with manslaughter. The case involving Herbert Weinstein, is that an example? That's right. I mean, that's an example. Herbert Weinstein was uh, was an individual who had a fight with his wife. Uh, she scratched him. He threw her out of the window. Uh, he was someone who had no history of violence. His defense attorney ended up giving him or having a PET scan given to him only to find that he had a brain tumor. That evidence was going to be introduced into court. The district attorney was very, very much influenced uh, by the fact that it was going to be introduced into court and, and lowered the crime that was charged in that case because of that evidence. So instead of first-degree murder, what happened? He, he got convicted of manslaughter instead. Is it ever the case that there's a biological explanation that's enough to find not guilty? Absolutely. I mean, the criminal law recognizes that somebody has to be behaving consciously and aware. If we have evidence that they were unconscious or semi-conscious at the time of their act, then they be can be acquitted of the, uh, out of the criminal justice system altogether. So is there an example where a neurological explanation has been enough to find someone not guilty? Absolutely. There was the case of Peter Bradley who had encephalitis. He acted out on a plane and was trying to injure people on the plane and get out of the plane. Uh, when the plane while landed, it was in the air. While it was in the air, that's right. And of course panicked everybody. All the passengers had to jump on him until the plane landed. Uh, he didn't remember anything about this episode. He had no history of violence. And later, it was later discovered that he had encephalitis. So the process Prosecutors decided in his particular case that if he was problem-free for a year, they wouldn't charge him for anything, and he wasn't charged. There was another case of Ilo Grunberg, who was on a who was on a medication, who ended up killing her mother. Uh, she was later acquitted. Actually, sued Upjohn Company as well uh, in a civil What's suit. Upjohn Company. Uh, Upjohn Company was uh, was the manufacturer of the particular medication that she was on. That was Ambien, uh, and not only was she acquitted of the crime entirely, uh, but she also won a civil suit for an undisclosed amount. So we have a number of sleepwalking cases of people engaging in violent acts only to be acquitted later when it was determined that they actually were sleepwalking and were unconscious at the time. These acts, of course, or these a... cases aren't frequent. They're very infrequent. But nonetheless, this all goes to show that the criminal justice system recognizes that when someone is acting involuntarily or unconsciously, that we aren't going to hold them responsible. So that's a lack of capacity. Another realm where neuroscience is brought in is with regard to insanity. That's right. I mean, we have always recognized for centuries that if someone is not uh, has a disease of the mind or they're not mentally capable of appreciating the nature and quality of the acts that they're engaging in, that they will be determined to be mentally ill. This is a, a rare defense. It happens in, in about 3% of the cases in this country. Uh, but nonetheless, it's a difficult it, thing to prove. It's a difficult thing to prove. And oddly enough, uh, it's a difficult thing to convince defendants to, to agree to. You know, many defendants, particularly mentally 
mentally ill defendants don't want it to be revealed in court or to even acknowledge that they're mentally ill. So defense attorneys have problems even arguing for this kind of defense. Nonetheless, we do recognize that if somebody is psychotic at the time they were engaging in the, in the crime that they convicted, that we are going to find them uh, mentally ill and, uh, and that they will be institutionalized rather than punished. Where does the burden of proof lie when it comes to insanity? The, the burden of proof lies with, uh, with the defense to prove uh, that their particular client or the, their defendant is, is in fact insane. And of course the prosecution is going to introduce evidence. Usually this is a battle of the experts, uh, but the prosecution is going to introduce evidence that the, that the defendant was thinking rationally that they could appreciate the nature and consequences of their acts. And neuroscience is actually changing the way that these cases are, are being brought. In some cases, neuroscience is making this kind of battle of the experts a very different kind of battle than it used to be. In what way? In, in the way that experts now are bringing in evidence of brain scans. This is where neuroimaging becomes critically important. Does this defendant had, have any evidence of brain injury? If the defendant does, where is that brain injury located? Is it in the frontal lobes? Uh, does the defendant have evidence of mental illness that we can measure in, in a neuroscientific way. Now, we've always had these discussions. We've always had this evidence. It's just the nature of the evidence has changed. It's gone from two psychiatrists talking about uh, their personal assessment of whether a defendant is sane all the way down to what are the brain scans saying. So instead of someone describing a, a car accident or a war experience, there'd be a, a neuroscientist showing a, an EEG scan. That's right. It's, it's come to the science getting harder. Uh, in some ways, one could think that the science is getting more objective. Uh, at least with scans or testing, there can be something experts can both turn to and discuss and share, as opposed to two psychiatrists just sharing their opinions. We've always had some degree of varying culpability. Does this type of neuroscientific basis, does it give individuals a pass? Does it give them a ticket to commit crimes and, and get away with it? You know, some of the public thinks introduce neuroscience or introduce brain scans and someone's going to be completely off the hook. They're not going to have any kind of responsibility whatsoever. But that's really not what's going on here. Most of the cases that I have looked at in my research that are using neuroscience are death penalty cases, uh, and they're using it only to argue that the, that the defendant shouldn't get the death penalty. But that doesn't mean that juries are buying this evidence. It's just one of many pieces uh, of the puzzle that they're being given to try to make a decision of whether to give somebody death or to give someone's life or whether to allow them to have the insanity defense or not. But many times we know that jurors ignore this evidence. They just look at what the person does and that's good enough for them to determine that they're going to get the death penalty. 
so, so this is no pass by any means. Uh, this has always been evidence that we've allowed into court for centuries. So this we've recognized, starting in England, be, even before uh, this country was developed, uh, that we can introduce evidence into court uh, that defendants were not as culpable as we thought they were, that they shouldn't be punished as harshly. So just fast forward into this century, where we're now saying, look, let's consider neuroscience evidence. We've already long considered psychiatric psychiatric evidence, and that includes, by the way, Freudian psychoanalytic evidence. For, cent for a century, that's what we were relying on in this country to determine people's culpability. Now we're just introducing brain scans. We're also introducing, as we always have, uh, non-imaging evidence, such as IQ tests, etc., to determine whether or not somebody's brain damaged. So as our understanding of the, of the brain evolves, so does the way that's treated in the justice system. Absolutely. We've always recognized that some people are less culpable of, than others. We've recognized that for centuries. But as modern times have developed, we're just getting more modern in our perspective on culpability. So in the case of Mr. Weinstein, that was a tumor that may perhaps have been operable. And, and in that case, perhaps his behavior would, would change back. What happens when the, the condition or the damage is permanent? It's hard to say that damage is always permanent. In other words, that someone is wired uh, to, to behave in a certain way. This is a stereotype, and it's some reaction that people have, say, to genetic evidence that's introduced into court or to neuroscience evidence. But the more we learn about the brain and this new evidence, the more we realize that that's very much a myth, this idea that somebody's going to have permanent brain damage. Unless that damage is so permanent that they're in a vegetative state or in a comatose state, uh, we're beginning to recognize more and more that, that brains can recover. What are we looking for? Are, when, you're, when you're examining a brain scan, are you just comparing one to the normal? Or are there certain indicators that show an unhealthy or dangerous brain? Neuroscientists, when they're looking at brain scans, look at uh, a normal group of individuals and compare scans to one another. So, uh, so if you're trying to determine whether or not somebody has frontal lobe damage, you're going to be comparing that scan to normal scans to see see what the what the extent of the damage or whether it exists at all. So, some of the the debates in court of this uh, this. These, uh, this battle of the experts is trying to assess whether or not this, this brain really is, is damaged. But typically, the baseline standard is a, normal, is a normal brain. But a brain could be damaged in a way that would have very little effect on behavior or certainly very little effect on violent behavior. Absolutely, that's an excellent point. Simply because somebody has a damaged brain doesn't mean that that's going to explain their behavior or that it's going to cause violent behavior. Indeed, we uh, neuroscientists have seen some brains that look like, that would suggest that the individual at issue has Alzheimer's, for example, but that individual actually behaves pretty normally. So there's not always a direct cause and effect. All, all a neuroscientist can ever say in court is, that this person has a damaged brain and this may have been a contributing factor to their behavior, but we're never going to be able to make, uh, make that determination for, for a certainty, at least not at the present time. You mentioned that neuroscience can be taken into consideration in punishment. 
you mentioned that it can be taken into consideration when it comes to the guilt or innocence. It's also been relatively successful when it comes to examining effectiveness of counsel. That's right, exactly. Uh, it, you know, the United States Supreme Court has recognized, starting in a series of decisions in, in 2009 in particular, that attorneys are obligated to introduce this evidence into court uh, just so that it's a reasonably mit mitigating evidence. And that's because the court recognizes that the, the neuroscience evidence is very important in a jury's determination of some someone's punishment. Is this isolated to death penalty cases? It's, it's certainly uh, specific to, to death penalty cases or in particular consideration of death penalty cases. Death penalty cases, of course, involve a juror's weighing between aggravating evidence and mitigating evidence. So in considering whether or not uh, there's mitigating evidence, it's beholden on an attorney to introduce uh, whether or not somebody has a prior history of brain damage or, or some kind of impairment or brain injury, or it's also an uh, incumbent on the attorney to investigate uh, whether their client at that present time has has some kind of injury. And thirdly, it's also an important for the attorney to introduce into court the right kind of expert. Attorneys have been found ineffective, for example, if they the attorney the expert that they're relying on is not the right person or that How they do don't mean? do a good job. For example, that they're relying on uh, someone who's not qualified to introduce the kind of evidence in the court that they So are. having a, a therapist, perhaps, instead of a neuroscientist? Absolutely. I'm thinking in particular of a case that I just came across very recently uh, where, you know, a social worker uh, was, was testifying about some kind of neuroscientific dysfunction in an inmate. They're, that person wasn't qualified. In, in other words, they weren't rendered uh, qualified to testify. Sometimes it's not neurological evidence, but the lack of it that's taken into consideration in overturning a decision or, or in an ineffective assistance of counsel claim. That's right. I mean, I, I've looked at a number of cases where courts have held that the attorney should have introduced evidence that, uh, about uh, his or her client uh, when the, the attorney didn't. And that happens in, in a number of ways. Either the attorney never introduced evidence of a long history that a client may have had of brain damage, school t test scores, et cetera, or the attorney- Test scores that would show test low scores IQ. That would show low IQ, or that the uh, that the client had emotional difficulties in school, uh, that the that the client had behavioral problems in school, or that uh, that had been subject to family beatings, etc. Uh, pretty horrific evidence that the that the attorney was aware of, but never introduced into court, or that the attorney never had his or her client investigated uh, at the present time to see if there was brain damage when later there was found out to be. Uh, next, uh, there's. There have been cases where the attorney, even when the attorney introduced that evidence, the attorney uh, relied on the wrong kind of expert or didn't prepare that expert sufficiently well. So there's one case in particular that I'm thinking about where the, uh, the expert made statements in court based on direct examination by the attorney that the expert would never have introduced uh, had the attorney uh, not questioned the expert in the way that he or what she kind did. Of Statements. Uh, statements that were very damaging to the client uh, and that the, the, that the court later held were damaging. You damaging have, as in 
this is a bad guy, he'll probably do it again? Absolutely. I introducing evidence that only made, the, only made the client look very bad or made the client look dangerous. Uh, and then uh, there was testimony by one expert who was later questioned uh, saying that they were trying to signal to the attorney during during the questioning that they didn't want to make these statements. Nonetheless, the attorney kept on questioning the expert regardless. Uh, and, and later the court holds that it's though the prosecutor were the one bringing out the evidence. Ineffective assistance claims are generally hard to win. How are these managing to make their way through? Ineffective assistance of counsel claims are incredibly hard to win. They, they take place in less than 3% of cases. Uh, so, so they're difficult arguments to make. In the, in the study that I was conducting, I found that when an ineffective assistance of counsel claim is effective, it's almost always due to the fact that the attorney didn't uh, introduced neuroscientific evidence that they should have introduced, or when they did introduce it, they didn't do it well. They didn't handle the evidence well in court, or they didn't use the right kind of expert. So this is all to say that the the omission or failure to handle this evidence is uh, has a large effect on whether or not an ineffective assistance of counsel claim is going to be successful. All right, let's take a break. For those who are listening for MCLE credit, you'll need the following code. The code for this interview is 156725. That's 156725. And now back to the interview. We've mainly looked at neuroscientific evidence in its use in reducing criminal punishment. How about the other end of the spectrum? Many people are concerned that neurological evidence could be used to show that someone is either guilty or likely to commit crimes in the future. The common perception is neuroscience evidence is going to be introduced into court to suggest that a defendant is going to be a future danger or that they should get more punishment uh, because they're, they should never be released and they're serious offenders. Danger to society. That they're a danger to society, that they're wired to kill, that they're wired to be violent. I found in, in my research that that's very rarely, that this evidence is very rarely perceived to be uh, interpreted in that particular way. And when it is, it's usually the fault of the defense attorney. In other words, the, the defense attorney introduces this evidence into court. The defense attorney doesn't give the expert enough guidance. So that expert ends up saying in court that this defendant could be a future danger. The prosecution then jumps on those statements and, and makes it so uh, that, that the prosecutor is suggesting to, it, to the jury that this person is going to be a future danger. Usually these cases can be avoided if the defense attorney is just more careful. But nonetheless, regardless, prosecutors rarely address this evidence because it's almost always viewed by the jury as, as evidence of mitigation, and they don't want to take that risk. But as the science develops, as investigators like yourself get a better handle of the neuroscience and its effect with crime, what happens if there really is an indicator that someone is statistically much more likely to commit a crime? 
when we come to that point, and we may, who knows, uh, I think the criminal justice system is going to have to respond differently. There's going to have to be some curtailment on the use of that evidence in that particular way. Why is that? There, because that would justify that someone would get a punishment, a higher punishment, when we're not 100% sure that they're going to commit a crime in the future. And, and until that point, and that's, that's a very long ways away, I think we have to think long and hard about whether we're willing to punish somebody on the faint hope or uh, understanding that they may commit a crime in the future. That's really dangerous territory. We've talked a great deal about the use of this science in death penalty cases. How about in lesser crimes? Have you seen neuroscience be used, for example, to indicate uh, perhaps forgetfulness or the inability to to pay attention to detail in a, in a fraud or tax case? I don't see this evidence used, uh, at least in the way I was uh, seeking these cases or researching these cases in lesser crimes. It's almost always used in, the, in more serious crimes, such as murder. That said, I do have a few cases where where it has been used in, in lesser crimes, uh, such as robbery or something like that. Uh, and that's usually to suggest that the that the defendant didn't didn't have the level of intent that they that they thought that they had. In one particular case, uh, and it's an older case, it's not even involving a brain scan. Uh, it was a case of somebody who used uh, neuroscience in self-defense, and that was successful. This was a New York case where a public defender went to great lengths to have non-imaging tests conducted on his client to suggest that his client was actually suffering from dementia. Uh, and and uh, that client was able to argue successfully a case of self-defense, uh, that he, he reasonably believed that the person that he ended up murdering was going to murder him. So it was suggesting confusion or some state of of lack of understanding that would take away the culpability. Absolutely. It, it, it led to suggest that he, he really did think that someone was going to kill him, but given his brain st uh, state uh, and his level of dementia and understanding that he, he didn't realize that probably wasn't happening. Talking about dementia, there was an interesting case involving a, a New York mob boss where dementia yes. wasn't found to be usable in, in the courts? Well, you know, this is an interesting use of neuroscience and, and something that I'm further investigating with my own sample that might satisfy anybody who might think this this evidence is going to be used to let someone off. I, I have found cases in my sample that uh, where the neuroscience is being used to suggest that actually the defendant isn't as in, uh, incapacitated as the defendant was suggesting. Uh, in other words, that the defendant is suggesting that that defendant it is, uh, is mentally ill or has a level of brain damage that the neuroscience is not supporting. Uh, so, so this is a, you know, this is the, the flip side or the flip benefit of using neuroscience that it's able to get to cases that, um, uh, to suggest or at least to investigate that maybe the, the defendant isn't as inca incapacitated as that defendant is, is suggesting that he or she is. How about cases involving juveniles? 
Neuroscience has come to the forefront in part because of cases involving juveniles. In 2005, the United States Supreme Court held in Roper v. Simmons the juveniles, meaning anybody under the age of 18, could, could no longer be executed. And in the Roper case, the court relied heavily on amicus briefs uh, indicating that juveniles weren't as mentally capable of acting or behaving as adults were. that They, they couldn't fully understand they, consequences. They couldn't fully understand the consequences, that they're more immature, their identity is not as strong, and that they're, uh, they don't understand as fully the kinds of behaviors that they're engaging in, in addition to the fact that they're heavily influenced by their peers. Uh, because of this reliance, at least in part, it was just a small part, but because of the court's reliance on neuroscience, uh, some people have suggested that that's, that was one way that neuroscience has gotten its foot more fully into the door of the criminal justice system, because there was recognition that neuroscientific evidence was suggesting that some people are not as mentally capable of understanding their actions as other people, and that some adults could have the same kinds of impairments or inability to more fully understand their behavior. We've talked mostly about the use of neuroscience with regard to the mental state or the, the brain of the, of the defendant. Another area of research that you've been involved with relates to the brain of the victim. That's right. They're looking at brain scans of victims. Most of the victims are dead, but some of those victims are, are living, and they're lo looking at the, they are using brain scans to measure the extent of their injuries. So, so that's what I'm focusing on right now. I interestingly enough, in victim neuroscience cases, in other words, when neuroscience is being used to uh, assess a victim's injury, those cases, that neuroscientific evidence is almost exclusively being introduced by the prosecution. And it can be incredibly persuasive. It can be incredibly persuasive when it's being used by the uh, prosecution for any one of a number of reasons. But, but more than 40% of those cases that I've been looking at, the cases are being used in a one particular context, and that's shaken baby cases. Uh, and that's, of course, the older terminology is shaken baby. It goes by, you know, about five different terminologies now, and non-accidental. What is, what is it? Uh, it shaken baby... Uh, uh, is is uh, a triad of three different uh, kinds of injuries about which an expert testifies in court. And if all of, of the, if this triad is proven, then how prosecutors use that is to suggest that the defendant not only engaged in this act, but they did so intentionally or knowingly. In many of these cases, it's being used to support a defendant's level of mens rea or intentionality. And uh, this is to show that the infant was actually the victim of a homicide rather than an accidental death. Well, it's typically considered to be a non-accidental injury when it's when it's being assessed by a doctor. So a doctor's just looking and seeing that this is, or labeling it as a non-accidental injury. But when it's being introduced into court, it's being argued as shaken baby syndrome by an expert. And, uh, and the prosecution uses that evidence to, to suggest uh, that it could have been a homicide. In 
other words, that the uh, that the defendant was um, engaging in this activity uh, that in a way that would knowingly or intentionally cause the baby's death. And it's used effectively by the prosecution to suggest that the defendant either intentionally or knowingly uh, was uh, engaging in grievous bodily injury toward the child. And the reason this particular shaken baby evidence is so effective is it's oftentimes the only evidence that's available. So without a, a witness to the actual act, it's often difficult to surmount the burden of proof. A absolutely. The prosecution, there's no witnesses, there's no prior relationship, etc. So all the prosecution has is this shaken baby syndrome evidence. Uh, and and they, pour, they put all their eggs in that particular basket. But that's a compelling basket indeed, because for several factors, first of all, a prosecution's going to have a brain scan almost immediately available to them. Uh, so in these shaken baby cases, when the child is injured, they're taken immediately to a hospital, and and that hospital is going to give uh, a, a CAT scan of some sort and oftentimes an MRI a few days later. Right away, that prosecution can use that uh, as a plea bargaining tool almost immediately against the defense, or they're going to be the one in control of this kind of neuroscience evidence that they can introduce. Uh, secondly, this is, uh, this is evidence that's been widely accepted by the general scientific community. There's been enormous amount written on shaken baby evidence. It's incredibly persuasive, but is it accurate? Well, the, the evidence actually has been widely criticized in recent years uh, for, for several reasons because uh, they're, they're, it's criticized because it's really a diagnostic tool used by MDs to suggest that uh, you know that the that the baby may have encountered a certain kind of injury. So the argument is, and I make this argument as well. It's a, it's a huge leap to suggest that a diagnostic tool is going to be used in the courtroom to support. Uh, a defendant's mental state. That's not the purpose of this evidence. Uh, and number two, the science behind uh, the evidence also has been widely criticized uh, because it's, it's not been replicated in, in, a, in a sort of scientific setting. So it may tend to suggest something, but it's difficult to actually show what the, in this case, what the defendant was thinking at the moment. Absolutely. It's, dif it's difficult to show what the defendant was thinking, and it's also difficult to, to apply a punishment to this kind of science because it's, it's such a weak science to be used in the courtroom. So in, in all our efforts to suggest that neuroscience is, is benefiting the criminal justice system in many ways in terms of greater precision, et cetera, it also has, has clear drawbacks when it's poorly used. And this is one of those dangers. This is one of those dangers, absolutely. Well, Professor Dunna, thank you so much for coming and explaining these issues to us, and we hope to have you come back another time. I look forward to coming back. For more legal explainers and interviews with the titans of law, visit TalksOnLaw.com. If you're earning MCLE for this interview, you can enter your confirmation code at TalksOnLaw.com slash podcast to get your certificate. Join us again soon for more cutting-edge interviews on the California MCLE podcast.